Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Marcella Sjöberg from Pontifical Catholic University of Chile on the show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you got your PhD from the University of Chile in 2006. After that, you joined the MRC Clinical Science Center at Imperial, Imperial College London for a postdoc. After that, in 2012, you joined the Sanger Institute as a postdoc. And since 2016, you're assistant professor at the Pontifical Catholic University in Chile. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Well, I, I guess I became interested in science in part uh, at home and in part school. Uh, my grandmother worked in telecommunications and my father was an electrical engineer, so none of them were any closer to the field of biology. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, both were very nature lovers. So my mother was always stimulating me, my curiosity by, by the beauty and perfection of nature. So I remember I could spend hours looking at the insects and plants. And also at that time, there were the, the documentaries on the TV of uh, Jacques Cousteau. Uh, so, yeah, I was probably very stimulated by, by those sort of uh, <laughs> um, uh, documentaries. And on the other hand, my, my father stimulated uh, a lot my curiosity for understanding little circuits and connections. So I was always kind of looking at those things. Uh, besides, he was an excellent uh, cook. So I guess uh, that was uh, that is how I learned to pay attention to the details and exact amounts when it comes to plan and perform uh, an experiment as a cooking recipe, right? <laughs> And at my school, I, I had a very cool biology and physics teacher. So I, I guess she also motivated me to pursue a career in science. And I remember just before finishing high school, when uh, you need to make a final decision about the, the career that you will apply for, uh, a university professor, Dr. Jorge Allende, which was a, is a national prize for natural sciences in, in Chile, he gave a talk at my school introducing the field of engineering biotechnology which really suited my interest. So I wanted to work closely to medicine to better understand the root of disease development. So that is what uh, I ended up uh, studying. So coming to your science, that centers around investigating the modulation of genome function via epigenetic mechanisms, especially currently you are interested in hydroxymethylation of DNA. Um, I want to start in the early stages of your career. Back then, during your postdoc, you were working on polycomp and modifications of lysine 9 of histone H3 and uh, repressed genes during differentiation. Um, can you talk about how you got into this field of epigenetics and what you found in this study? Um, during my PhD, I was uh, characterizing the microtubule-associated protein tau, tau that was found in the nucleus of neuronal and non-neuronal cells. So to study their nuclear role uh, and test, uh, we tested its uh, association with DNA. So I went to do an internship with uh, Dr. Eliette Bonnefoy at University Paris 5, René Descartes. So we characterized its uh, nuclear localization and show that the interaction of tau with satellite alpha satellite DNA sequences that uh, concentrate in peracentromeric heterochromatin. 
So there I became familiar with the field of epigenetic. And after finishing my PhD, I decided to move to the UK for a postdoc uh, with a uh, career uh, development fellowship to join the lab of Dr. Neil Dillon at the MRC London Institute of uh, Medical Sciences of the Imperial College uh, with the idea of learning about gene regulation and chromatin. So uh, there we were investigating the role of the double modification, histone H3, trimethyl K9, serine 10 phosphorylation in post-mitotic cells. So this is a histone mark that normally decorates mitotic chromosomes, but we were uh, interested in looking at the role of this mark outside mitosis. So we used two different model systems, mesenchymal stem cells differentiated to osteoblast and post-mitotic antibody-secreting plasma cells. And we wanted to profile and compare the distribution of this double histone mark on these post-mitotic cells. Uh, interestingly, we found that the mark persists in the nucleus following differentiation in post-mitotic cells, and that this mark works uh, as a marker for gene silencing, characterizing the chromatin of uh, repressed genes, uh, that this mark was uh, placed by the Aurora B kinase, uh, or at least this kinase participated in the establishment of this modification in post-mitotic cells, displacing the binding of HP1 beta. Um, and this was, uh, was published in EMBO journal. And later on, we also demonstrated that this double uh, modification uh, is acquired at, uh, particularly at polycom-regulated genes such as the Hox genes, for example, to modulate RNA-Pol2 binding and also uh, polycom binding, working as a developmentally regulated methyl switch that can coexist as well with the other repressive mark that is the histone H3 trimethyl, uh, lysine 27 trimethylation. So uh, while working on that, we also investigated the role of Aurora B in non-cycling cells, and for that purpose, we use primary cells, that, uh, particularly a pool of quiescent resting B cells, uh, in order to have like a synchronous uh, non-cycling population, because Aurora was playing a very important role in, in cycling cells. So we were able to demonstrate uh, in that piece of work that the um, um, the Aurora B kinase was localized at the promoter of actively transcribed genes, um, and also that it was interacting with the polycom proteins ring 1B, BMI, and CEPX7. So basically, these uh, polycom uh, 1 complex proteins uh, together with Aurora B were localized at the promoter of uh, actively transcribed uh, genes, and this was uh, not the, the canonical way of uh, looking at it uh, at that time. So we were uh, very puzzled by the, this finding, uh, but at the end we were really convinced and, and, and it was a, a, a challenge, an interesting challenge. So we found that the, this, this uh, complex was required for polycom for RNA-Pol2 uh, binding and also serine 5 phosphorylation and also for transcription and regulation. So, um, yeah, that was a, a very interesting uh, piece of work we did. So you really got interested in epigenetics during your work. So it was not like you started out looking for a PhD in epigenetics, but um, the epi uh, well, not the epigenetic work, but the work in your PhD got you interested in epigenetics. Exactly. Yes. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is how, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I basically, I, I didn't know much about epigenetic. Epigenetic in Chile at that time wasn't like a, a, a field, uh, you know, it was pretty much the beginning of epigenetic, I would say, because when I moved to, to London, uh, everything started uh, with the technology, the technological developments. Uh, it was the time of chip-on-chip chip and microarray, so... Yeah, this is how everything started when you know, looking at genome-wide, the distribution of histomarks and, and proteins. Yeah, and the technique has come quite a long way since then. I mean, back then you really had to, to pay attention to what kind of probes you had on the chip. And now you can just look at, at all the, as I mean, you, you do sequencing, right? So you can look at all the, all, uh, all of the genome. But back then you, you really had to pick which uh, fragments are on the chip and also probably had to account for that. And it was pretty much until it was looking at one gene and the regulation of one gene yeah. and, and by one protein or, or two. So, yeah, it basically it was a big uh, opening, mind opening, moving to, yeah. <laughs> to London to work uh, more genome wide. Yeah. yeah. So next you were part of a study with the title Identification Characterization Herit Heritability of Marine Metastable EPLEs, Implications for Non-Genetic Inheritance. So what did you find there? Yeah, so um, just to introduce that, that piece of work was part of the uh, the Blueprint project. It was a European consortium uh, where I uh, I was working as a postdoc in the group of uh, David Adams and, and Ferguson Smith. So um, during that postdoc, I generated um, DNA methylation maps for 5-methylcytosine and 5-hydroxymethylcytosine. In, in lymphocytes, in B and T lymphocytes, uh, using a mouse as a model. Um, and those maps, we use those maps to basically look uh, for uh, these uh, metastable APLLs. This was a work led by Anne Ferguson Smith. And, and what we found basically uh, was uh, a long piece of work is that um, uh, by concentrating on identifying these um, EIP insertions, so these repetitive elements uh, along the genome, what we look at uh, was um, uh, how we examine the methylation uh, profiles of these uh, EIP insertions, uh, particularly at these uh, uh, repetitive elements that are on, on the three prime and five primes, uh, which are called LTRs. Um, and what we compared was the methylation profiles between uh, different individuals and within the tissues of the same individuals. And what we found that uh, is that there, there was inter-individual methylation variation, uh, that the, uh, the genetic sequence was partially involved in this, uh, in this methylation variation. Uh, but... Uh, Mostly, that that what we found is that um, the the uh, heritability of this uh, you no know, uh, variable methylated uh, repetitive elements um, they they basically uh, these methylation patterns are are reestablished from one generation to the next. Uh, they are not heritable. No, this heritability was kind of. Uh, uh, what we were looking for, but we didn't find much this heritability. Uh, they are uh, preserved within tissues yeah, of the same individuals, but they are not uh, as much heritable. 
So this uh, uh, no, memory of this parental methylation step uh, was more uh, what uh, we call the exception rather than the rule <laughs> between individuals. So um, at the beginning of this interview, I said that uh, your current research interest is hydroxymethylation of DNA. So the And this was the first time you were working on the 5-HMC. So was this like kind of the start of the current research interest you are still pursuing? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So basically, I, this is how I, I, I got really interested. What we did with these uh, uh, patterns of ventilation was to identify the genes, the specific genes that were acquired in this uh, hydroxymethylation mark. And what we found that these genes were playing, you know, by gene ontology analysis, they were playing specific roles. And uh, then I took that, that the information, what we are investigating is what are the readers of this uh, hydroxymethyl uh, cytosine mark on lymphocytes, uh, what proteins bind and recognize this mark and how other uh, chromatin marks are correlated with the, uh, the presence of these hist histone marks. We, we have developed, and uh, in collaboration with the Sanger Institute, a knockout, a conditional knockout mouse model uh, to or in order to basically uh, knock out the, the, the enzymes and uh, understand better understand what happened when you lack this uh, histone mark and you induce differentiation when you challenge the uh, T lymphocytes. Uh -huh. I'm just one one comment. It, it's not a histomark, right? It's 5-HMC, so it's a, a modification of the DNA. Yes, but we, we what we were looking is how the presence of the modification yeah. DNA correlates with the presence or absence of a particular uh, chromatin marks. Yeah. In no, particular, yeah. we were looking at the tramethylation of uh, lysine 4 in histone H3. So what kind of methods were you using at that time to identify the 5-HMC? So we collaborated with the laboratory of uh, Chankar Bala Subramanian. Uh, this is uh, at the chemistry department in Cambridge University, uh, uh, UK. Um, so we use the oxidative bisulfite sequencing approach uh, to, to profile uh, genome-wide. Uh, so basically, uh, this was a, a chemical treatment with the potassium uh, uh, Can call the, the, I can remember the, the chemical uh, use. Yeah. Okay. So next you were part of, of a methods paper looking at single-cell RNA-seq. Um, so what was the goal of this study and what did you find there? Yeah. So uh, this piece of work was, was uh, led by uh, Martin Hemberg at the Sanger Institute. And um, what we uh, did there was basically what we, we used this. Um, okay. So the beginning was we were trying to understand uh, what was the, the, the function of the presence of uh, hydroxymethylcytosine across gene bodies. Uh, we found that there was uh, the presence of the uh, DNA methylation mark, hydroxymethylation mark, uh, correlated positively with the presence of broad domains of uh, lysine uh, for trimethylation in histone H3. And uh, at that time, there was a publication uh, stating that the, these broad domains of histone H3 uh, lysine for trimethylation uh, correlated with the concept of transcriptional consistency at the single cell level. So basically, we, we came up with the hypothesis that uh, 
probably uh, DNA hydroxymethylation was also contributing to the transcriptional consistency phenomena, allowing the demethylation of those regions and the establishment of the of these uh, uh, broad domains of Eastern S3 uh, lysine 4 trimethylation. So, so sorry, uh, just to interrupt you, what does um, transcriptional consistency exactly mean? Um, the same gene across different cells or in, in the same over, over time? Yeah, so this means that the very same gene uh, is transcribed at similar levels within between individual cells. So if you do RNA single, uh, single cell RNA sequencing, uh, and if the, the gene uh, is transcriptionally consistent, <laughs> you will see similar levels of uh, transcription for that gene across. Uh, yeah, so it's more, more a spatial aspect in the tissue than a timely aspect in the same cell. Exactly. So, and the opposite of that is basically that you have in like a T-cell, uh, no, no expression of that gene, and then and another T-cell, a very high levels of expression. So this is not consistent. So we, we came up with the idea that this was allowing transcriptional consistency for these specific hydroxymethylated genes uh, between uh, single cells. So we generated, uh, we did a single cell RNA sequencing uh, and after a lot of <laughs> work uh, in collaboration also with uh, Catalina Vallejos and uh, 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 a lot of people, also the, the laboratory of Sarah Teichmann, um, we basically didn't manage to demonstrate that that was the case. So in the work with Martin Kember, what we did was to take these single cell RNA seq datasets and perform a benchmark study to test different isoform quantification tools uh, using these single cell RNA seq datasets uh, to basically uh, uh, analyze how, how these uh, different uh, isoform tools used in bulk perform in single cell uh, datasets, single cell RNA seq datasets. Um, so we found that single cells uh, tend to express, uh, interestingly, tend to express one isoform as compared to two found in, in bulk, for example, RNA seq. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and in general, the the performance of the different tools uh, uh, was uh, um, small uh, compared to bulk data, or of course because you have no less data, less representation of the transcriptome. So, last but not least, and this will maybe lead also into your more uh, recent work. Uh, you also looked at the influence of DNA methylation at transcription factor binding motifs. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit about, about this approach and uh, what did you find? Yeah, so uh, that, that piece of work, uh, we hope we'll see the light. Uh, this was a, a work done in collaboration with the group of uh, Michael Hoffman in Canada. So we are uh, about to submit the, the, the work uh, uh, to a journal uh, and what we what we were doing there, and this was uh, a work uh, of uh, also Kobe Wiener, uh, which was a PhD student at uh, Michael Hoffman Lab. Uh, so we use again these um, uh, 5-methyl cytosine and hydroxymethyl cytosine maps 
that uh, we generated to identify DNA modification sensitive uh, uh, cis regulatory modules um, to confirm uh, binding preferences uh, of uh, transcription factors such as uh, ZFP and CBP transcription factors. So um, we basically, uh, principally, mainly <laughs> Kobe and, and Michael were you know, uh, using these um, these maps to test and adapt uh, different position uh, weight matrices uh, models to expand like the the alphabet. This is how they call it now, expanding the alphabet of nucleobases. Um, um, that the transcription factor can encounter, can 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 recognize, and try to predict their sensibility to 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 these modifications. So I, I can speak more because that that work will be published, will be submitted soon for publication. But it's in bioarchive now. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. and I, I will put a, a reference to this and into the show notes. So can you talk maybe a little bit about your work that is going on in your lab right now and what? your plans might be for the next, let's say, five years? Yeah. So what we are doing at the moment is uh, we, are, we are working on identifying readers of 5-hydroxymethylcytosine uh, in lymphocytes, in T-lymphocytes, um, uh, that readers of the marks, and also trying to see what happens to the differentiation process when you challenge these lymphocytes uh, uh, and they lack this uh, hydroxymethylation mark on particular genes. We are concentrated on, on genes that are playing very important functions, uh, regulating proliferation and regulating also differentiation of, uh, of T lymphocytes. And uh, so what we want to understand is basically what is doing hydroxymethylcytosine uh, marking these genes, not only uh, from, the, from the point of view of uh, uh, regulating levels of transcription, but also what what are the proteins that are uh, recognizing this mark and what for, like to, to switch the gene off, to keep the, the gene on, or or to regulate, uh, for example, uh, DNA damage, which is a thing that, that now uh, we know that uh, 5-hydroxymethylcytosine is it's, it's somehow uh, linked to the regulation of DNA damage. Well, that didn't sense. And uh, so we are we are looking on that spectrum of things. We are also working on the interplay of uh, epigenetic modifications and uh, metabolic sensors. We are uh, studying, and we have done mass spectrometry uh, analysis in order to identify uh, proteins that are uh, binding to these hydroxymethylcytosine regions. And we, we have identified, interestingly, uh, some metabolic sensors. So we are exploring the interplay of these uh, metabolic sensors with uh, uh, that enzymes and also with gene regulation. And uh, we are also uh, collaborating with other colleagues and exploring similar things, but uh, in different cellular contexts. So we, we are... Basically, we're basically looking at immune cells, but uh, we are also in collaboration with other colleagues looking at neuronal cells uh, and different physiological contexts. So uh, this is how where we are moving and where we will probably be working in the next five years. 
and and also uh, we are very happy because we are starting a project um, in single cells. So we are uh, again with an international group of Latin American uh, PIs uh, from Mexico, Brazil, uh, Colombia, Argentina, Peru, and Uruguay. And also with people with um, uh, Dr. Uh, Trinka, Kosha Trinka from the Sanger Institute, we are starting uh, an ancestry project in order to understand at the single cell level. This was um, uh, this is a grant from the Chang Zuckerberg Initiative uh, for the Human Cell Atlas in order to understand how ancestry uh, and how genetic variation can impact and can and can shape uh, immune function. So we are uh, analyzing how how genetic variation in Latin America uh, can tune can can shape immune function and can can modify the chromatin uh, accessibility, for example, uh, and gene expression uh, of immune cells in Latin America. So we are super happy. We're starting that project. Uh, this year. Uh, that's, that sounds very interesting. Are you still looking for people? So like postdocs? Yeah, 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 yeah. I am, I, I am about, we're waiting for the funds. Uh, so, and I'm putting everything in place, but I will be recruiting postdocs. So if there is a postdoc interested uh, uh, and with experience in single cell uh, RNA-seq analysis and analyzing, uh, please, uh, and, and you want to have an experience in Latin America and Chile, <laughs> please uh, reach out to me. <laughs> Yeah, that leads me to my next question. So if somebody wants to come to Chile, so what is the research landscape like in Chile? Um, are there some epigenetic hotspots or what is it like? Okay, I, I, I believe that the epigenetic uh, community is, is, is growing, uh, still little. Uh, I think uh, there is a, a lot to do and a lot to teach. So people willing to teach <laughs> epigenetic in Chile, I think, will be more than welcome uh, because uh, the field outside uh, from Chile it's uh, it's uh, it's quite big and, and technologically very advanced. So I must say that that we need to keep up uh, with with the technology developments abroad. So it's always good to keep uh, collaborations with the, your your colleagues and, and mates. Uh, uh, outside uh, Latin America, because the uh, technology, you know, the access to technology is very important to to be uh, at the frontier <laughs> in epigenetic development. Um, so yeah, so the community is little, but uh, we are very close to each other, and we try to organize uh, symposiums and workshop, and always inviting. Uh, the best people <laughs> out there. Uh, probably we can do m much more, but um, uh, we we are we are uh, growing little by little and, and fostering a community of uh, uh, of younger uh, students interested in the field of epigenetic. Yeah, I mean, it's also a question of time, right? If you have enough time to <laughs> to also foster and to work on the community building. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, in general, you with so in general, you you as a as a researcher, you you don't have the like in Europe that you have institutes that are focused mainly on epigenetic research. In here, you do university teaching, uh, which consumes a, a lot of time, and on top of that, you do research. So at least in Chile, in general, so um, there I can I can tell of only uh, one place that uh, have a. Um, only 
dedicated to research, um, at least in Santiago, but in general with the university teaching and, and, and admin and yeah. all the other work, the, there is little time, but still I, I believe the, the community, I can sense it uh, when I do teaching to PhD students that they are very attracted to the field. Uh, it's just that they, they don't have lessons uh, at the university. It's, uh, yeah. You don't have the, the topic of epigenetic uh, at the university per se. You cover that in different courses. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. The first one, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to answer the questions you wanted to answer? Uh, well, uh, I would say dead end, uh, I still probably at the point of my career where I can reach that dead end. Uh, so I always, uh, with, the, with the knockout mouse model that we developed, Uh, we face a point where we basically didn't manage to uh, bring down the protein levels of the of the the, the tetanzyme in our model system. Uh, so we did different attempts, and and in the time frame that this was done in primary culture. So basically, we can you cannot extend longer the the cells in culture. Uh, so during that time frame, we didn't manage to bring down the levels of the protein. So that was very stable and that is very interesting. So we are really exploring what is going on uh, and why the protein is so stable and where is it localized in the cell. So we're exploring uh, that piece of data because it's, it's super interesting. Uh, uh, and um, we didn't, I didn't feel that I reached it then. I didn't manage to, to use that model to test a hypothesis. So we basically are knocking down and trying inhibitors, which is not ideal um, uh, for TET enzymes. But uh, we will use the model in uh, for other to, to investigate in other cell systems. So we are exploring uh, and we plan to explore in muscle cells and in neuronal cells, the same uh, conditional knockout uh, model. So... I don't feel that I have reached at the end. I don't want to feel like that. <laughs> There is a lot to do. So yeah, you always keep a positive mind. <laughs> so in the last 30 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most, most important findings or what you would consider your most important findings or talk about something that we have missed in this interview? Uh, okay, so I... I I feel very attached to the the PhD work at the beginning, probably what got me into epigenetics. So, so at some point I will come back to uh, to the field of Alzheimer's disease. So that that work uh, that I did during my PhD had a close connection to the root. I believe I still believe to the root of Alzheimer's disease, and uh, so identifying the association of tau protein. Uh, to satellite DNA sequences and its presence. And uh, we, we also explore how uh, tau protein and nuclear localization was regulated by uh, post-translational modifications. So I, I believe that piece of work is super interesting. And I, 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 I see that the, the people is um, using that information and exploring that further. Um, I think it, there is something very relevant in there that can be used to, to better understand Alzheimer's disease. So I will also recap at some point uh, that piece of work. Um, also, the identification of uh, Aurora B at uh, uh, transcriptionally active genes. So the work that was published in Molecular Cell, I think that was a very 
uh, important piece of work for me because the beginning was challenging, no? identifying something that was not the, the, the canonical way of looking at the, uh, at the, the, at the Aurora B. No? It was awkward to find it uh, at the promoter of uh, genes in non-cycling cells. But we pursued that uh, observation and, and identifying that it was uh, forming a complex with polycom uh, uh, one uh, complex uh, proteins with ring one B with uh, CBX seven and sitting at the promoter of transcriptionally active genes regulating um, RNA pool two uh, phosphorylation that was an H two H two A. Ubiquitination was a very relevant piece of work as well. Um, the the other relevant piece of work I think I, I was involved with uh, was the, the 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 work publishing in Cell, the work led by Anne Ferguson Smith. You know this uh, the, again <laughs> the the way of looking at the metastable alleles and, and and looking at the heritability of these uh, methylation patterns and and finding that the, it was not uh, necessarily the case. Uh, I, I, I believe it is a very important piece of work as well. Um, and more recently, the, I, I, I can highlight two pieces of work that uh, I have involved with. Uh, my first PhD student in, in Chile. So we were working, um, looking at, the, this was a little bit outside from from DNA methylation, it was more a transcriptional uh, project. We were looking at the, the addition of uh, RNAs by other one is uh, adenosine deaminase uh, enzyme, um, and we were looking at uh, the addition of long non-coding RNA. So we were trying to generate a, a, a catalog of long non-coding RNAs that were. Uh, targets of this other one enzyme, uh, which is overexpressed in breast cancer. So with the idea of identifying, in a way, markers of, uh, of, of um, other one, higher levels of expression, and uh, maybe trying to identify um, long non-coding RNAs that could work as a, as a, as a uh, prognostic markers. And, and we found uh, in, in the analysis we did with uh, Pamela Rojas, uh, which is uh, who, the PhD student who, who led that uh, uh, work uh, in collaboration with uh, Ricardo Armisen, um, that was part of the University of Chile and, and, and uh, 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 Pfizer Institute that was located in Chile, in Santiago. So uh, we found that um, the the other levels uh, in, in, in breast cancer correlating positively with breast cancer were also targeting this long long coding RNAs, particularly we identified the link uh, 00944 um, as a responsive uh, long long coding RNA to other levels. And it was also correlating positively with tumor infiltrating T lymphocytes and uh, with other apopto apoptotic markers. So it's, it's low expression. The low expression of this uh, long non-coding RNA uh, was correlated uh, with the poor prognosis 
tumor size and also estrogen and progesterone receptor expression. I believe that piece of work was also very important and, and open uh, other areas or other lines of their search in, in, for Pamela and also for, mm -hmm. for Ricardo. So that was interesting as well. And more recently, there is another piece of work again, uh, which is uh, linked to our core. This work was um, led by um, Dr. Uh, Maria Estela Andres, and it was uh, another PhD student, I co-tutor with Maria Estela, uh, which is um, um, Carlos Rivera. And what they found is that our core, which is a um, member of a co-repressor complex, Again, uh, important for the recruitment of uh, LSD1 and HDAC1 to basically erase methylation uh, and, and lead to gene silencing was opposed to, to the canonical way of looking at it again, uh, was found at the promoter of actively transcribed genes. So this was unexpectedly uh, found at the transcriptionally active genes uh, and uh, was associated at World one uh, uh, was presence at the transcriptionally, at the promoter of transcriptionally active genes was associated with RNA pol 2 uh, deacetylation at the terminal, at the C, uh, terminal domain, um, bringing down the RNA pol 2 uh, productive elongation. So basically working now as a, as a transcriptional rehostat uh, for uh, transcriptionally active genes. So that is also a very important piece of work published in, in Nature Communication this year. All right. So I will uh, make sure to put all the references in the show notes so that everybody can find it. And thank, uh, thank you, Marcella, for your time and for being on the show. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me and having me here. So I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.